Welcome to Cognitations, a podcast where we interview cognitive scientists about their research and how it applies to our everyday life. Cognitive science is the interdisciplinary study of the mind. It includes domains such as cognitive psychology, the neurosciences, modeling, linguistics, philosophy, and more. This week, our guest was Olivier Morin, and we would like to apologize for the sound quality because we could not record in a place where there was no noise and because we had to edit out said noise, a bit of distortion can be heard, especially in my own voice. In the following episodes, we won't have this problem. So bear with us and we hope you enjoy the second episode of Cognitations. We are today's host and I'm Thomas. I'm Jay. So. Today's podcast is about culture. Culture is everywhere. It includes art, the disseminations of theories or social norms, customs, the food we cook or eat, and so on. Culture also seems to be what distinguishes different communities, families, or entire countries or continents. Is it possible to explain such heterogeneous and complex phenomena? More than that, can we identify the cognitive, environmental, or social factors that underlie the spread of practices, norms, and ideas? What is it that allows certain traditions to survive and develop? sometimes for hundreds or thousands of years. And our second, death, second guest on this show is the person to answer all these questions, or at least some of them. He is Olivier Morin. He is a tenured CNRS researcher at the Institut Jean Nico in Paris. Previously, he led a project at the Max Planck Institute for the Sciences of Human History in Vienna. He has published a book, How Traditions Live and Die, along with many articles on the topics of uh, social cognition, its development, its evolution, on writing systems and on communication, and much more. Welcome, Olivier. Hi, thanks for having me, Jay. Thank you, Thomas. Um, so just a, a general biographical question to start off. How did you end up doing research in cognitive science? How did I end up doing research in cognitive science? So I'm a product of the classic French system of the prépa. Uh, so I did an AL prepa. For those who know, it's uh, it's a kind of uh, undergrad uh, training that uh, puts a heavy emphasis on uh, history, philosophy, literature, and the classics. Uh, so you know, a bit of Latin, a bit of Greek, and that kind of thing. Um, not at all conducive to cognitive science because zero math, even zero social science, zero economics. Uh, so, so I, I started from a, um, a starting point that's quite different from where I ended up. I went into cognitive science thanks to Colombal Superior, where I discovered the, the work that was done at the DEC. Initially, the plan was to do philosophy, but I was frustrated with the historical approach to concepts that was kind of mandatory if you wanted to do the aggregation. So the aggregation is the degree you have to take in order to be a philosopher uh, in, in a standard system. At least it was 20 years ago. And, well, as luck might have it, that year when I was supposed to prepare that degree, that concours, uh, the, the whole program was about Hegel and Augustine. And not just any Hegel or Augustine, but Hegel's logic and Augustine uh, Trinity. So uh, I found that it was just way too far from the exciting thing I could read about logic and philosophy of mind. That's kind of why I shifted. Long story short. Now, more, more specifically about uh, cultural evolution. Sure. Uh, how did you become interested in it after your studies? And uh, what are the links maybe uh, between uh, cultural evolution and cognitive sciences? That's a good question. Uh, so cognitive science really was uh, an epiphany. I loved the topic the moment I got acquainted with it. Anyway, I still very much love the, the general research program of uh, treating the human mind like a, like a computational mechanism and making broad universal generalization and testing them. That's something I've always been on board with. Cultural evolution is much more of a... Uh, convenience uh, topic for me in the sense that it's not a passion, uh, it's a way to make the study of culture legitimate. So my original goal was really to uh, study culture in a cognitive science framework. 
in the old days where cognitive science got invented, anthropology was fully part of cognitive science. It was part of the so-called hexagon, uh, which is a bit of a, a myth, of course, but it was part of the picture. Uh, things have changed a lot since then, and nowadays there is not much anthropology uh, in the pages of journals like Cognition or Cognitive Science. Uh, some uh, cognitive anthropologist friends would not be happy for, with me for saying that, but I still think it's factually true, even though it's uh, a bit deplorable. Um, now, the, the attempt that we were pursuing with Dan Sperber and his students and uh, no, we are still are pursuing is to make the study of culture uh, cognitive and to make the topic of culture interesting to cognitive scientists. Cultural evolution is a way to do that. Uh, it's uh, quite distinct from cognitive science originally. So none of the main, uh, the main innovators of cultural evolution at the beginning of the 80s were cognitive scientists. They were mostly biologists, behavioral ecologists, uh, anthropologists, ecologists. And what they wanted to do was uh, using the toolkit of ecology and biology, mostly models, to uh, consider the, the spread of languages, uh, differences between cultures, and, and so on and so forth. So it's a research program that's gathered a lot of steam over the decades, and it's becoming a sort of very broad catch-all terms for people who want to study culture in a, in a way that's heavily inspired by the hard sciences. Uh, and by art sciences, I mean like mostly biology uh, and and a bit of cognitive science. So that's how we end up uh, sharing a building, let's say, with cultural evolution in, in many of the things that we do, even though I wouldn't say that it's central, it, it was necessarily central to my research. Hope that's not too convoluted an answer. No, no not at all. But so what, um, according to you, would distinguish uh, the cultural evolution from like, evolutionary psychology or anthropology or uh, behavioral ecology where all studies about culture are, yeah. That's a good question. Um, let's go step by step. Yeah. So cultural evolution uh, initially was part of a, uh, of a big movement that tried to understand human behavior using biological uh, tools. And there were two other branches to that movement. One is evolutionary psychology and another is a human behavioral ecology. So the the differences uh, in methods and uh, preoccupations are not that big when you look at it from afar. But of course, we are academics, and when we are inside our, our, our little chapel, we see big differences with the uh, school next door. And in that case, there are significant differences. So one of the differences is um, how do we treat cultural transmission? In uh, evolutionary psychology, the idea of cultural transmission is seen as deeply problematic. You, know, you, you, you are an animal in an environment with a brain that's adapted to your needs. You go about your life trying to survive and reproduce and get food and solve problems. And you see another individual that does things and communicates things to you. There's nothing obvious in the idea that you should imitate that individual. Uh, you know, the, the default should be don't imitate, just follow uh, your, your brain's instincts or whatever. So if cultural transmission occurs, it has to be for very specific reasons. It has to bring a real important payoff. And that's the way that people in the evolutionary traditions tended to see culture. In contrast, the cultural evolutionists, they start from a much more culturalist vantage point that's inherited from the anthropological tradition, which is to take cultural transmission as the default, to say it's unproblematic. Uh, that it's kind of natural for humans to copy what's around them and that this is the, the starting point we should uh, use as a foundation for our disciplines. There was one big disagreement on this. Uh, another disagreement is the place of uh, ethnographic fieldwork, which for behavioral ecology is huge, uh, and for evolutionary psychology and cultural evolution can be uh, much, much less important. Uh, so and well, last aspect is the importance of modeling, which was central in cultural evolution, a bit less so today, but still quite important. So there are lots of uh, minor, uh, the differences that would be minor for uh, a general audience that, that are a big deal to, to us. In terms of like the other approaches to like, like sociology and anthropology, those who, there are people in, in those approaches that would kind of reject like the use of these uh, biological tools 
Do you think that their methods and their theories are complementary to what you do? Or would you say that there's a real uh, tension there? Okay, this is where I uh, put the diplomat's, uh, you know, uh, cap on and, and, and yes, weigh, weigh, every, weigh every word in my answer. Um, so all these people I mentioned, the cultural evolutionists, the behavioral ecologists, the evolutionary psychologists, and, and many cognitive scientists on the side, they all share a similar commitment to a certain way of doing research, which is uh, to go a bit quick, uh, empirical, quantitative, and theory-driven. But that last point is key because there are many, many parts of the social sciences that are empirical and quantitative. Uh, but theory-driven is, is, a, is a really big aspect of what we do. Uh, the goal is always to start from an ID uh, that is as general and broad as possible and then test its implications. Um, and the ideas often come from evolutionary biology in a very, very broad sense. So it's not necessarily, if you dislike adaptationism, it doesn't have to be adaptationist. If you dislike uh, group selection, it doesn't have to be group selectionist. There are lots and lots of flavors, but the broad framework is that. Now, in, uh, in social sciences and in anthropology and in humanities-inspired disciplines like history in general, especially in our country, there are two reasons to reject this general approach I described. One is that it's not always straightforward that quantitative work is valuable. Uh, there, since the, the turn to micro, micro ethnography, micro storia, and uh, qualitative research, there, there is a general weariness of quantitative approaches. That's one thing. And another thing is that the, the very notion of testing theories based on, on evolution is, is still heavily controversial, partly because it's biology and there are lots of ideological preconceptions that uh, surround the topic. I may or may not get into it, depending on whether we have the time, but also partly because it is theory uh, and it makes predictions. And it's not just, you know, qualitative or, or, or even quantitative description of what we have. So it's a way of doing research that is different in methods, in preoccupations, and also, you know, quite simply in the kind of places where people publish. Uh, so there is a, I don't know how to qualify it, but there, there's a, a distance between uh, the kind of way we look at human behavior and, and the way of looking at human behavior that's most prevalent in sociology or anthropology, to be sure. And yeah, maybe just, uh, are there uh, also real differences with evolutionary psychology, or uh, is it much more closer to evolutionary psychology research? It depends who you ask. So the way we try to do cultural evolution here at the DEC is uh, really continuous with evolutionary psychology, keeping in mind that evolutionary psychology is a broad church and uh, certainly no one has to be uh, obsessed with the, the narrow range of topics that exemplify evolutionary psychology in the eyes of the public. So we don't study uh, mating, for instance. Uh, I mean, it's a legitimate topic, but it's not the heart or even art of, of what we study, really. So the way we do in cultural evolution, we take, uh, we give a lot of attention to the way uh, the challenges of being an organism adapted to its environment has shaped human cognition, which is a way of doing evolutionary psychology. Uh, we disagree, of course, with uh, some claims that are made in evolutionary psychology. You can't agree with the field as a whole because uh, people disagree inside the field uh, as usual. But yeah, there's a, there's a continuity here, I think. That's not true for everyone who does cultural evolution. Part of cultural evolution was really invented as a kind of strong response against evolutionary psychology. Uh, that's not the way I, I see it myself. So after having talked about these very general elements, yeah. methodology and things, I guess we can just go right into like uh, one of the main themes of your research. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, like a, a way to get into it is just to remark that, well, as we did in the introduction, culture is everywhere in a sense. It's very totalizing. Um, and we tend to talk about cultures or culture kind of really nearly uh, just in everyday life, but it seems to be a very common sense notion. Um, but then we can ask, so what precisely is it and how does a scientific notion of culture differ from the common sense notion? Yes. Uh, well, that part of the drama of doing the work we do is that there is no uh, such thing as a recognized 
canonical view of culture distinct from the everyday conception. And the sad consequence of that is that everybody has an opinion about your research topic. Uh, if, if you study ants or uh, tumors or uh, clouds, you know, nobody thinks they know better than you. Uh, they think your topic is boring, and maybe, but they don't, you know, uh, they don't think they could uh, discover anything you, you, you think you, you are discovering. So we, we have a lot of work, preparatory work to do to kind of construct a scientifically valid uh, concept of culture. I tr I've tried to do that. Uh, I'm only one among uh, many others, of course. Uh, one big step in uh, in extracting this idea of culture that's kind of scientifically autonomous is, well, first of all, to distinguish it from the usual notion of high culture. Uh, so culture is not the culture in the sense of the Ministry of Culture. Another big step is to tie it to social learning and, and cultural transmission. So culture is not just any kind of uh, symbolic uh, behavior that we can witness. Not everything that people do is cultural. There has to be a room, uh, a causal role to be played by social learning, cultural transmission, a transmission from one individual to the next. I would add a third ingredient, which is that the social learning in question has to uh, be active over the, the long, long run. So it's not, not enough if... Uh, I, I make some random gesture and you imitate it out of habit or out of automatism. Uh, that's not culture per se. In order to have culture, you need long chains of transmission that span generations that can differentiate populations and so on and so forth. So the, the notion of culture that we study when we look at cultural evolution is almost always quite thick in the sense that it's not just any effect of social learning. It's not just social life. It is uh, the transmission chains that emerge when people learn from one another. Now, this has become quite different from the everyday understanding of culture. In particular, when you look at the conversation of biology and culture, many, many times what people mean by culture is anything that's not genetics. You know, it cannot be people's uh, uh, innate tendencies because it's cultural. Uh, culture is not... Uh, uh, catch all, you know, the bin where we put everything that's not uh, explainable by biology. Uh, it is a very specific phenomenon. Uh, so part of the effort of cultural evolutionists, and on this I am completely on board with the whole movement, is to take seriously the anthropological concept of culture, which is not new, we are not inventing it, but it needs to be defended and solidified so culture does not become the the error term in biologist's equation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does seem like in, in the common sense notion, there's this uh, distinction between nature and culture that seems to be a binary, right? Anything that's not culture is nature and vice versa. But it seems like you're suggesting that actually it's it's not a binary and there are things like like it, like imitation out of habit, for example, that wouldn't be constrained by biology purely, but that isn't cultural. Uh, do, do you think, so how do you think, given your answer, we should rethink like this distinction between nature and culture? Uh, absolutely. I would even go so far as to say we should not abandon it, but we should put it aside uh, for for many, many debates. It's not doing very good work because, well, colleagues here like Daniel Nettle have done uh, interesting work on the, the way that this nature-culture uh, dichotomy is polluting many debates on all sorts of issues ranging from, uh, you know, it, is violence genetic or uh, is eating sugar good for you? There's often a, a tendency to bin causal contributions into two buckets. Uh, the bucket of things you can change and that are under social control and the bucket of things that, that uh, are, cannot be changed and are part of, of the human uh, uh, makeup. That's Maybe that's putting things a bit strongly, but... Yeah, we should be very wary of uh, using culture in that way. Uh, culture, the way I see it, it's it's a phenomenon. It's something that needs to be explained. It's not uh, an explanation of anything. It's just something we see. We see that behaviors recur. We see that songs get transmitted from generation to generation. We see that clothing styles differ from one society to another. And our work is to explain that. But we have not... When we say that, we, we haven't given an explanation. We just have identified a set of things we need to explain. 
Mm. Which is interesting because in, in everyday conversation, it seems like, oh, it's just their culture. It seems like an, a sufficient explanation for people. Oh, why, why, mm-hmm. why, why, they, why was there such misunderstanding at the office? Oh, because mm-hmm. the person is from such country, and mm. and people are satisfied with that. But I guess that's how science kind of goes beyond. We try at least. <laughs> but um, uh, earlier you you talked about uh, you mentioned the trans like cultural transformation, mm-hmm. uh, but in your book, how traditions live and die, you distinguish yeah. between uh, the diffusion of culture and the yep. transmission of culture. Can you go over that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so cultural transmission is really the micro level uh, process where I tell you something and you may uh, catch it or remember it, or and vice versa. Uh, so cultural transmission really is the the scale of description where we look at how ideas travel between minds. Now, this is not enough to make culture. Uh, I, I, as we discussed before, uh, if I tell you a joke and it's not very funny, you won't pass it along. If you just imitate some random tick I have, it's not going to become viral in any way. So in order to have culture, you need more. And that's where we look at what I called, again, it's not very original, uh, a scale of diffusion where ideas are not just transmitted from one person to the next, but are retransmitted and retransmitted again. In the book, I try to make the case that the real puzzle of culture is not really the puzzle of how social learning happens. It happens in many, many ways. There's a ton of mechanisms that are, in a way, overstudied. We know about that. But the real puzzle is how to get from that micro level to the macro scale where you get real traditions emerging. And in order to do that, social learning is not enough. Imitation is not enough. Whatever micro mechanism you have in mind, it's never going to be enough because it needs that mechanism needs to be active over and over again. It needs to be repeated. The tradition needs to be successful. It needs to... Uh, invade a sufficiently large population so a real tradition is born Uh, and i think this is the real uh, challenge for the study of culture to identify the causes of a diffusion so at the beginning of diffusion there is so if i if we understand correctly uh, a chain of transmission and after that uh, after a sufficient number of transmission chains we have a a diffusion of culture but so uh, you talked about uh, numerous mechanisms at the basis of uh, cultural transmission. Uh, so w- what are what is there uh, besides uh, imitation, maybe? Are there other key mechanisms? Uh, lots of them. And uh, a part of the research agenda of cultural evolutionists is to do a kind of typology of mechanisms where information can flow from one brain to the next. Now, my agenda is really to resist that temptation to do a typology. Because typologies are endless, we can always add a new mechanism. So every every year, there's the new, there's emulation, there's the uh, unconscious emulation, there's a reconstruction, wh- whatever. Um, but in the end, what really matters is how these mechanisms snowball into into bigger diffusion chains. Uh, still, it's it's interesting to look at a micro level, of course. Uh, so the the type of mechanisms I'm most in- interested in are mechanisms that uh, are not imitative in the sense that they are not, they don't particularly care whether you do the same thing as the person you uh, are interacting with or not. Uh, an, an example of non-imitative mechanism is argumentation. Argumentation is an important aspect of cultural transmission. Uh, and you know many, many ideas that we get, we get from arguing with others. Even if we don't agree with them, we get... Uh, uh, rationalizations for things we believe, uh, weaker uh, rationalizations for others, and we change our mind in this way. Now, this is a, a form of transmission, a form of interaction that is typically not imitative. People who engage in argumentation, they are not here to uh, mimic others. Uh, so th- this seems kind of trivial, but it is not because in the study of cultural transmission, there has been a, a, a dogma uh, at the heart of cultural evolution, really, that if a tradition is to be successful, it has to rely on some kind of imitative mechanism. Uh, and an imitative mechanism is a mechanism that cares about fidelity. It cares about me doing the same as you. Um, it could be, it could have all sorts of names. It doesn't need to be called imitation. It could be many, many things. But at, at the end of the day, you have you need this drive to do the same as X. And the most popular illustration of that is the theory of memes by Dawkins, which is 
many people's entry point into cultural evolution. Now with Dan Sperber and, and many of the people here, we have really tried to show that you can build a coherent theory of cultural transmission based on mechanisms that are not like imitation. And this kind of uh, overthrows the consensus that was in the study of cultural transmission since very early on, since the days of uh, Gabriel Tard, who kind of pioneered the field in the beginning of the 20th century. You mentioned also like argumentation, but argumentation and imitation seems to be pretty human faculties. Uh, so uh, what about the popular opinion that what distinguishes humans from animals is culture? Is it uh, right in what way? Uh, I don't know if it's right, but it's certainly debated. Uh, so there's a history to this question. And to give you a bit of background, Many things started to change uh, in the end of the 1990s, where, I mean, it, it had already been noted before that, that you would have stable traditions in non-human animals. But these were kind of anecdotal uh, and, uh, and, and small-scale behaviors, like uh, uh, opening of a bottle of milk by a bird and other birds imitate it. Uh, but in the end of the 1990s, ethologists really started to... Uh, systematically look at traditions and they found not just one or two but entire bodies of, of behaviors that seemed to be uh, impossible to explain by genes alone or by environments alone let's say so it opened the door to the possibility of non-human cultures um, I'm not entirely sure that I buy this because I'm sensitive to arguments that say well there, there are many ways a behavior could Spread and differentiate populations, even though it's not entirely explained by genes and environments, uh, just by, um, wouldn't say just by chance, but just because the presence of the behavior is sort of positive feedback effect. And uh, the learning mechanisms that uh, are at play here, they don't necessarily need to be very elaborate. Uh, so the, the notion of animal culture is very much. Uh, uh, part of the discourse now in cultural evolution and we really need to take to take it seriously. I'm not an expert on that topic so I, I tend to remain agnostic when I, when I teach it or when I debate it. What I'm really sure about is that the debate will not be settled by trying to see whether animals have imitation or not which used to be the big question you know. Uh, if chimpanzees are capable to imitate faithfully then their cultures will be genuine. If they cannot be then their cultures will be bunk. Now, many people are starting to realize that maybe true imitation, whatever that means, is not very interesting ethologically, because in evolutionary terms, it's not very useful to have. So animals should be doing lots of things, but not true imitation. Uh, and maybe many species don't have it, but still they may have socially learned behaviors. And some of these behaviors may be traditional in, in an interesting sense. So my take on this debate is that I'm completely open to the idea of uh, non-human cultures. Uh, although it's an empirical question. And I think it should be decoupled from the debate over capacities for imitation, capacities for conformity, and so on. And so what could be the best ways to maybe to, to determine that some animals have culture or don't have culture? Um, well, it depends who you talk to. Uh, so there, there's two very different ways of approaching the, the, the question. One of them is to look at uh, experiments with captive animals, and the other one is field is field work. Typically, the field workers have a much broader uh, notion of culture than the uh, experimentalists because the the data is way di is very different, uh, and you can't really control uh, what mechanisms are at play. You can't observe every step through which a behavior like nut nut cracking uh, or uh, you know, the eh, leaf clipping or whatever, you can't observe all the steps through which that behavior has passed. So in for these people, the the telling signs of culture is uh, is that you can't explain it with genes, you can't explain it in, in easy ways with the environment, and you can't find it in populations that are uh, close by uh, or, or rather remote but have the same environmental and genetic conditions. Uh, now, many people who are in an experimentalist uh, uh, framework would disagree with that, saying, well, maybe uh, you have a behavior that is present in group A, but not in B. But what makes you say that its prevalence is due to social learning in an interesting sense, 
as opposed to just, you know, that there was one animal who was clever enough to invent a behavior. It left traces of its behavior around itself and that made the behavior a little bit easier to acquire. But possibly in another society, uh, in another chimp group, the behavior would have been invented nonetheless. It's just a matter of chance that it hasn't arisen. That's the kind of debate people engage in in that literature. So we talked about like the sort of imitation mechanisms and other mechanisms that would allow uh, transmission and fusion. But another question is uh, that of how we select information, because yeah. it seems like in our environments, there's just in a way, in a sense, too much information. Uh, it's, that seems especially true today. Yeah. So how do we select the, the information that we uh, attend to? Oh, wow. That's not a topic I've worked a lot on. Uh, and uh, I'm just as lost as you are. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't know how to allocate my attention. Uh, can I can I pass on this question? Because I really haven't worked on that. Uh, yeah, at all. Okay. So going uh, back to, to the fusion part mm-hmm. for now, uh, just in general, uh, um, what what drives uh, the diffusion of such and such uh, artifact or behavior, songs, movies, rituals, etc.? Mm. Um, well, there's no general formula uh, to explain cultural diffusion, but there's a couple of ingredients that are necessary uh, all, all the time. If you look at things in a very abstract way, which is what I tried to do in in the in my book. Uh, the ingredients you really need are uh, repeated transmission, uh, proliferation, so the, the tradition has to uh, exist in many, many, many versions that uh, can be found uh, in many, many different individuals. And in that way, the extinction of the tradition in one or a few individuals doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, one last ingredient is the capacity to retrieve the same tradition from many uh, different brains. Uh, an analogy I like to use, it wasn't in the book because it was only, uh, I only learned about it after after the book was published. So I, I knew, I had this friend who is a Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish uh, who told me that my book was just making an old rabbinic argument uh, and it were, were invented nothing new. You should always listen to people who say your work is nothing new because they, they're usually right. In that case, he was, so the, the argument is, uh, is, uh, is an argument about the Jewish faith. So the King of the Khazars, according to legend, Khazars were a tribe in Central Europe, like nomads. Uh, and their king wanted a religion. He had no idea where to turn. You know, should I be a Christian? Should I be Muslim, Jewish? You know, all these things seemed attractive and you need a religion, but which one to choose? So he has a priest, a rabbi. It, it sounds like a bad joke, but it's a, it's a genuine argument. So he has a priest, a rabbi, and a... And a um, Imam uh, in front of him, and each one argues for their religion, and so on. And and so you know, the the priest goes like, uh, "The our religions were was revealed to Jesus Christ to communicate it to humanity, and Jesus made miracles and died for for our sins. He's an exceptional person. You should believe it." The Imam goes like, "You know, Muhammad received this revelation from God that he consigned into a book." Uh, the book is very true. Muhammad is an exceptional uh, prophet, and therefore you should believe us. And the rabbi uh, says, "Well, you know, all these are changes, transmission chains from one entity to one person, you know, God to Abraham, or God to uh, Muhammad, or God to Jesus, whatever." But when uh, Moses communicated the, the Torah to the chosen people uh, on Mount Sinai. There were 10,000 people in attendance. So any, if, if there had been any mistake in the revelation of the face, any one of the other 10,000 could have corrected Moses. Uh, and the, the key to the robustness of the Jewish tradition is that there were many people in attendance. Of course, this is sophistic because who did Moses get the, the Torah from, right? It's a one-to-one transmission chain all over again. So there's nothing. I'm not proselytizing for any faith at all. Uh, this being a podcast, I have to be careful. Uh, but the gist of the argument is uh, a good transmission chain is a robust one because it has many, many, many links. And that's the key to how traditions can be sustained over the long run. Now, this is trivially true, and but it's very easy to lose track of, especially in cognitive science, where we study cultural transmission very often in the lab, 
very often using translation chains that are A to B to B to C, C to D, and so on. So this Moses on the Sinai argument, I think, is very powerful, and and we should all, always keep it in mind when we try to explain uh, cultural diffusion. Yeah. So like, what we lose when when we lose track of, of the fact that this this very basic fact about transmission chains, it kind of means that regardless of the nature of the transmission chain, what medium it is, if you if you don't keep track of that fact, then you're just yeah. gonna miss the yeah. Hmm. Given given this 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 fact, uh, and that it's the the robustness of the transmission, we could think of some like those of this is random in a way. So what determines this, and uh, how much of it is the product of just chance? Oh, that's an excellent question. It's one one of the one of the questions where cultural evolution has made real progress, because there are we the field has developed formal tools that really allow you to model in very in a very fine-grained way what would happen if cultural change were completely random. Uh, and one very surprising output of these models is that even when cultural change is completely random, it can produce huge differentials of success between uh, cultural practices. A good example is first names. So some first names are in insanely popular uh, and other first names are much less uh, uh, widespread. So a name like uh, James or Olivier is very widespread, whereas a name like uh, Violetta is rarer. When people look at that, when I look at that intuitively, I think, well, there, there must be something special about the widespread name. There must be some kind of reason it's successful. And in a way, when people uh, approach cultural evolution for the first time, usually they do it because of mimetics, they think they're going to find out what makes some cultural items so successful? What makes them go viral? Why, why are they so big? Uh, and in a way, mimetics has sold this idea for a long time. What cultural evolution has shown very conclusively is that you can get huge differentials of success by chance alone. Uh, and a big implication of that is that if you, re if you rewind the tape of cultural history, you might get very different results. And some uh, items that would have been viral in, in a possible world will not be viral in, in another possible world. Now, I should qualify that immediately by saying that chance is not the only story. Uh, but cultural evolution gives us a, a very good baseline. Baseline is what we call a kind of null model, a model that assumes something very silly, very simplistic, and probably very false, and tries to see how re reality differs from that. The, the completely silly, false, and simplistic assumption is that it's all random. Uh, the surprising result is that this silly assumption can do a lot of predictive, predictive work and it can already account for many, many things. So now our job is to uh, try to account for the rest, the things that the baseline does not account for. And this is where typically here in, in, our, um, uh, in our lab uh, at the DEC and at uh, the Evolution and Social Cognition team, we appeal to cognitive factors. We appeal to the rule of evolved cognition in favoring some cultural items over others. In my own work, I tried to uh, uh, use uh, cognitive science to explain why certain cultural forms become more successful than others. The big aspect of this research uh, has been looking at visual cognition. We know a lot about vision. We know a lot about the, the human brain and how it's sensitive to certain shapes. So for instance, I did a, I did a paper showing um, that uh, portraits that look at the viewer tend to become more popular and also more cited in uh, art books. Um, another uh, couple of papers looking at letter shapes and the way that the letter shapes that fit human cognitive constraints are more widespread, more uh, popular, so to speak, than others. So the way we try to account for uh, cultural success is, is by using cognition. There are other ways to do that. You could look at more... Uh, more restricted uh, social considerations, like is certain style promoted by such or such a prestigious influencer or not? And there are many people in cultural evolution who do that. Here in our team, we really try to focus on the, the, the most generalizable, most, uh, uh, I wouldn't say universal because that's a loaded term, but the, the cognitive factors that are the most reliable. And things like the, the appeal of direct gaze or the human brain's preference for certain kind of, of symmetries, to me, they, they qualify as relatively uh, robust 
what we call factors of attraction. So things that make a tradition go viral, so to speak. I see how we can test for cognitive sectors that uh, orient our culture. Mm. But how can we, can we know for sure when we speak of, of randomness that we just haven't missed some factor and that it's really random factor or pure chance? Yeah, that's a good question. You never really know on the individual level. So if you look at one song uh, that got big and seems completely silly, uh, you will never know whether its success is due to Charles or to something uh, that you haven't accounted for. But you can answer that question at the aggregate level, looking at the whole population of songs for the year 2022. And the way you can do that is, is with a baseline model. If you uh, show that the distribution of success for songs that you can generate with a null model approximates sufficiently the real one, of course, you cannot say it's all due to chance uh, because the model need not approximate reality. But what you can say is that any theory that goes beyond chance is less parsimonious, and so it has to justify its existence in some way. It has to make better bets. It has to make better predictions. So in a way, you're never really sure that your theory is true. That's that's kind of inference, how inference-based our, our models work. You never know that your model is true. It is it's always it's always false in if you if you look at it closely. But what what your model tells you is that if you want to do better than the model you need to up your game and you need to make extra predictions the model doesn't make. So that's how it works. We never, we can never really say for sure this is the mechanism, but we can make uh, comparisons and say, well, this mechanism is more parsimonious than the other one. In practice, we are all convinced that cultural change is not random uh, in, a, in, a in a fundamental way. So randomness is a set of causes that we don't know that. You can be perfectly deterministic and still use these, these random models. Uh, it's kind of a philosophical question what randomness means here, but you can be completely agnostic about the rule of chance and still use these models as a kind of baseline. Does this have any specific sense beyond just like the methodology of classical statistics where you, in, in like uh, psychology classes, they drive it into a head that you have to uh, that what we're doing is we're testing against the null hypothesis and you're not saying that the, the hypothesis is confirmed, you're saying that uh, it isn't disconfirmed or... Ah, yeah, uh, it's different. So it's different from null hypothesis significance testing. So the methods I mentioned, they don't necessarily use uh, null hypothesis significance testing. And and in fact, some of the people I'm, I'm having in mind when I explain this they are very hostile to the idea of null hypothesis significance testing. And because the null hypothesis in the in the kind of textbook statistics that some that we don't teach that at DEC, but in some places in the on the internet this idea can be encountered that uh that you know the the, the royal way to inference is to debunk the, the null hypothesis. The problem is the null hypothesis is uh, almost always absurd. Like there's absolutely no difference between two samples is usually, you know, uh, a, a bit of a lame duck. So the the way cultural evolutionists try to improve on the state of the art is to make null hypotheses that really make sense and that are uh, powerful enough to explain to make sophisticated predictions. Uh, random models of cultural change are sophisticated in that sense. First of all, they they start from mechanisms that make sense. So the, the key mechanism is that if an ID is present, it's more likely to be copied. And the more copied it is, the more present it is. And, and therefore, you are going to have uh, huge success differentials for, uh, uh, for certain uh, cultural practices or others. That's not really a problematic assumption, and it does a lot of work. It does very specific predictions. So it's not uh, the same type of null hypothesis as the standard null hypothesis. It's, it's better, I think. Okay, and, and for the psychology part, uh, so if our psychology determines a lot uh, the spread of culture, yeah. um, can we, or has it ever been the case that we can compare the, the selection of genes with the selection of culture, like in memetics? And so do we have, for example, the, the more fitted or the better IDs that are selected or the worse IDs maybe? So yeah. That's been a temptation since, the, since cultural evolution existed to to try to replicate, the, the world is apt, uh, the successes of uh, uh, of 
gene-based gene uh, theories of uh, biological evolution to culture and have metrics like fitness uh, and you know do the do with culture the kind of things that uh, biologists are doing with life uh, mostly it has not worked as planned uh, it has not worked as planned for many reasons some of them are reasons that are quite general to the study of fitness which is, fitness is extremely difficult to measure uh, it's always it always works comparatively it uh, it it is only one uh, you know selection is only one of the forces as at play and as we just discussed Drift plays a big role, and it's hard to disentangle the two, etc. So these are very general issues with the application of these models. But there are, there are also reasons that are specific to culture. Uh, one problem we have is that we don't have DNA. Uh, we do not have a simple way of describing uh, cultural variation. In biology, there's a very simple way of describing biological variation. It's not doesn't cover everything, obviously, but it's quite powerful, in that, and that's DNA. And you can, to a certain extent, as an approximation, describe evolution as change in gene frequencies, and it will make sense in many, many cases. This is not an option, obviously, for, for cultural variance. We have zero uh, way to uh, extract a sort of essence or uh, smallest common denominator of all cultural forms. There's no alphabet of culture in the way that DNA could be described. And, and again, I know this is a controversial idea now, but... Uh, it's 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 an easy way to look at life, at least to describe DNA as the alphabet of life. We don't have that, uh, so it's very difficult to to look at culture in that way. And many cultural evolutionists don't do that at all. Um, so in a way, that's uh, that's uh, it's a kind of an illusory um, uh, aspect of cultural evolution. Many people think cultural evolution should do that. But but really doesn't. But uh, speaking of the alphabet, yay! Uh, you've actually I worked... totally didn't try you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so another part of your work is on uh, transmission, specifically of uh, writing systems. Yes, and so we all learn in school, I think, that history, the, the official start of history, is when we first learn to write. Whenever that's estimated uh, being, uh, but. What is like the origin of writing? How, how how do you think we started to write? How did that arise? Mm, that's a big question. So it's the core of my current research. And uh, it's, a, it's a topic that I like because it really ties together the study of cognition, the study of culture, and, and cultural evolution. And I think as people who study culture from a cognitive standpoint, we're really out to have something to say about the evolution of writing. The way I approach this question is to dissolve the topic of writing into smaller topic, because writing is really many, many different things uh, in one word. So the way people use the word writing when they ask what is the origin of writing or when did it start, it can mean at least two or three different things. One of them is uh, using inscriptions, permanent inscriptions to record IDs. Now that's very, very old. Uh, and certainly did not start with the beginning of history, the first civilizations. It's much older than that. Graphic codes and visual culture have been around for as long as we can remember. And it's not just cave art or tattoos, but also uh, tallies, uh, ways of recording information that are fairly sophisticated way before we have calendars and agricultures and all that. So if you ask, uh, when did writing uh, appear with that meaning in mind, you're really looking at the very beginning of symbolic expression in humans, and it's certainly not something we know historically. Yeah. We don't we don't have an historical documentation of that because it's much older than history itself. Another classic definition of writing is the representation of language with uh, graphic marks. Uh, so that's uh, the canonical definition of writing. So in that in that view, writing is not just any kind of uh, graphic code, it's a graphic code that encodes a natural language, such as English or Sumerian or whatnot. If you look at writing in that way, it's very weird the way it appears, because uh, it's, it really happens by accident. Uh, what I mean by that is that you first uh, start using graphic marks to encode the sounds of a language only for proper names. And in some places, like 
the, the Aztec writing is one case in point. In some places, it stops there. You will never use uh, these graphic marks for anything besides proper names. And it's funny because the way you using uh, the way you are encoding proper names is very elaborate, and it has the potential to encode anything in the language. For instance, an, an Aztec name could be uh, "He who fights the enemies with thunder." Now, the phrase "He who fights the enemies with thunder" is a complex grammatical uh, noun phrase that. It takes a lot of resources to encode. So if you're, if you're able to write down he who fights the enemies with thunder, you should be able to write down uh, today I recorded a podcast with Thomas and Jay. But you don't. You just stay with the notation of proper names. And you do that for centuries. And only uh, much later is the capacity to notate natural language evolving into something much more elaborate where you notate full sentences and so on. Uh, the theory I've been trying to push is that this is linked to uh, the demands of asynchronous communication, which is communicating things to people who aren't there or to uh, time periods that are in the future. And this is the thing that writing allows you to do, which back then was completely impossible to do with just speech. Uh, so I think this is the key ingredient. Does this explain the fact that proper names, writing proper names appears first or something or? Mm, not quite. Uh, I don't know exactly why that is. It's a big topic. I think it's a good puzzle for cognitive scientists to tackle because uh, the semantics of proper names and the linguistics of proper names have always been a big deal in uh, semantics, philosophy of mind, and so on. Uh, and there really seems to be something special happening with proper names and the origin of, of phonetic encoding on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, something special with proper names and graphic codes in general. So in many societies, people invent emblems, uh, think about flags, think about heraldic coats of arms, think about badges. These are things that, uh, that are about places, people, institutions, all the things that natural language would encode with proper names. So there is something special that ties proper names to, um, to graphic emblems in general. I think the, the standard explanation for the link between the writing and proper names is not very good. Basically, goes something like uh, it will be too complicated to uh, express those in uh, in plain words. Uh, so, so in in ideographic in ideographic ways. Not not what I wanted to say. It will be too complicated to explain those in ideographic ways using emblems and so on. And therefore, we and 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 therefore we need to encode them linguistically. The problem is it's very easy, in fact, to, to encode these things with emblems. And people had been doing that all the time. So there's, it's, not an, it's not an explanation that's that coherent with the facts. So if you ask me what kind of stuff I'm working on right now, it's typically the kind of puzzle I would like to, to solve. Yeah, so also that there are different kinds of writing systems, of course. And uh, what do you think, uh, or do, do we know about what differentiates uh, the factors that... Uh, that, ex ex that explain why we can observe certain uh, variations in the types of writing systems that exist. <clears throat> yes, uh, we did a paper about exactly that. Uh, and there are many ways to describe the variety of letters. We are still, so this is work that I've done with the Minds and Traditions Research Group in uh, Jena. Uh, a, a lot of it with uh, Elena Mitton and uh, currently with Julian Kim. Uh, we use all sorts of methods to tackle that question. Uh, some of it is just observational. Other other methods are uh, looking at data uh, that's been uh, gathered by linguists. Uh, a lot of our current work is based on citizen science with participatory app and things like that. What is our citizen science? Uh, well, it's asking everybody to join and, and uh, sharing with you, your work. Uh, if you look at the website glyph.shh.mpg.de, glyph that G L Y P H. If you Google glyph Max Planck, uh, you will find it. It's a maplet of the Max Planck Society. So that's a project where we ask lots of people uh, to uh, help us in describing the letters of the world's writing system. And the hope is that we get a, a systematic and rich description of letter shapes because we don't have anything like uh, what linguists have when we. When they want to describe sounds, they have the phonetic alphabet. They have a beautiful toolbox that's uh, cut and dried, and they can use it in a fairly uncontroversial way. There's zero uh, 
there's absolutely nothing like that for the, the study of laser shapes. So we're trying to build that descriptive vocabulary. Going back to your question, we asked the question with Elena Mito in a paper, uh, what makes letters complex? So complex, uh, intuitively, a letter like W is more complex than a letter like I. It has more detail, it's more elaborate, whatever. And there are, of course, formal ways uh, to, to measure and describe that. And there are just two basic answers to that question uh, that, that, are both, that both make sense. One of them is that it's about history and shared inheritance. So letters kind of inherit their complexity from their parent scripts. So if Egyptian is complex, then the, the, the daughter scripts of the Egyptian uh, uh, system will be, uh, will be also relatively complex. And another uh, answer is that it's driven by the demands of the script itself. Uh, what we found is that the biggest factor by far is the demands of the script, by which we mean what kind of units it encodes. Does it encode syllables? Does it encode uh, morphemes? Does it encode uh, uh, phonemes and so on and so forth? So when we want to account for the diversity of uh, shapes in the in the world's writing system, cultural transmission in the sense of where does the script come from? What are its parents? What is its cultural uh, milieu? Doesn't actually matter that much. What really is driving the the, the, the trend is uh, is functional. Is what the script is used for. So you also work on fiction. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So um, why, according to you, are we interested in fiction? Are they useful? Or are they just appealing? In what ways? Uh, the the big challenge in my view when we study fiction and I don't claim to have the, the final answer is how it relates to other behaviors that we know in other animals so the, the vantage point that not just me but many others in this team use when we look at fiction is, a, is really an evolutionary uh, point of view and we look at fiction the way uh, a mythologist would look at play or uh, laughter or, or, or behaviors like that. I'm mentioning play and laughter because I think that fiction has a lot in common with these behaviors. Where if you consider play in the animal kingdom, uh, play is um, a way to prepare for uh, events in life uh, by simulating them. And it's associated with special signals like laughter. Uh, and it also is specific to certain types of behaviors. So people, you know, animals don't play at sleeping. They don't play at uh, being sick. They play at uh, chasing, uh, hunting, and fighting. Uh, so, and, and there is a, a theoretical background to this. People have re realized the, the proximity between different kinds of play, play in humans, play in uh, animals, and so on. Another ingredient that I think is important is dreaming. Because, uh, again, dreaming is, uh, uh, simulates events. Uh, people can uh, tell you what the dream was about. It has a content. Content is not illusory. We know that thanks to a lot of beautiful studies on REM, uh, uh, fade sleep. And, again, it does not simulate any event. You don't dream that you're writing an essay, at least very seldom. You seldom dream that you are... Uh, uh, well, sleeping or that you are sick, but you, in many societies, people dream about chasing, they dream about uh, uh, having uh, embarrassing social circumstances, etc. So the idea that grows out of this literature is that there is a, an evolutionary utility to behaviors that simulate important challenges in life. Uh, now, I kind of disagree with the broader adaptive view of fiction instantiated by people like Marr, Otley, if those names ring any bell, that fiction is usually uh, adaptive because it prepares you for stuff. I think the answer uh, to why fiction might be adaptive, uh, and it doesn't mean that all fiction consumption to date is adaptive, it means that it taps into a mechanism that used to be adaptive for reasons I'm about to explain, I think the reasons why it's adaptive, that mechanism, are much more specific. And namely, it's about a specific kind of events that you can't really prepare for by training. So if you consider poisoning, food poisoning, it's a very common uh, uh, 
problem, you can easily prepare for it by taking precautions and learning from your mistakes. Because you get food poisoning many times in your life and it, doesn't, it never really kills you. Uh, and so you can prepare, get better at it and so on. But if you think about ordeal like a violent fight with a conspecific or an extremely uh, challenging and humiliating social situation or, uh, or a choice that commits you for the end of your life like a, a marriage in a society where marriage is really for life, um, then you need to prepare for those things and you cannot prepare for it by training. You can't train at choosing a mate for life. You can't train at fighting a very dangerous animal because training is too costly and it might cost you uh, everything. So the, the theory we, we proposed in a paper with uh, Alberto Acerbi and Oleg Sopchuk was what we call the ordeal simulation hypothesis. Uh, and one of his predictions is that fiction should be about ordeals, which are events that are uh, really too important to prepare for simply by training for them so that simulation should uh, uh, be uh, used instead. And it's something that fiction consumption has in common with play, that it has in common with dreams. Uh, we are not saying that fiction is adaptive right now uh, or that, you know, we are not making any claims about that and it's not really what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is using this evolutionary idea to make specific predictions about the content of uh, stories. And what we showed uh, based on that, uh, what we predicted and showed is that violent death is extremely important in fiction. Of course, you're, you're going to tell me we already knew about that. But uh, actually, certain types of violent deaths are much more common than uh, they should be. For instance, uh, animal predators are, are very important. Uh, death by firearm is much less important than in the real world. Although, if you look at American fiction, uh, you know, two-thirds of violent deaths in America are, are due to firearms. But the, the, the actual rate in fiction is much lower, which makes sense if you take an evolutionary view where uh, violent deaths is much more likely to be hand-to-hand -hand, uh, combat. So that's how we uh, like to think about fiction in that paper. I don't think it's an, it answers really your question about is fiction adaptive or not. I don't, I don't think we can answer that question with the kind of data we have. But taking an adaptive view of the brain mechanisms that underpin fiction whatever their adaptive value may be today, can help us understand a lot about what happens in, in fiction. Yeah, I, I think that's a good answer. And so, so maybe what seems uh, interesting uh, is that there are more and more maybe science fiction or fantasy mm -hmm. stories. Uh, and it doesn't seem that we fight against dragons or that we have magic powers. So in what way, how can we account uh, for that with the simulation hypothesis? Oh, I feel like you need to ask Nicolas Bomar, uh, who is uh, interested in that phenomenon. I don't know that there is so much more uh, imaginary uh, dragon fighting in, uh, you know, uh, to, be, to be precise, I'm not sure that the, the causes of uh, ordeals in fiction are so outlandish today as compared to yesterday. Uh, the, the fiction is the way people die in fiction is, has always been impossibly weird and unusual. And it's, it's something that people have noticed since there was a study, since Aristotle, since people have been looking at fiction from a theoretical standpoint, they're like, this is, this is odd because fiction presents us the, the weirdest and most implausible behaviors in, a, in very realistic terms, uh, which I think the ordeal simulation hypothesis helps explain uh, because a good simulation should be realistic in every way except the fact that it, 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 the central event is not going to happen to you anytime soon, like a fire alert or, or a flight simulator. These are very realistic simulations of things that are very unlikely to happen. Um, yeah. It's really very realistic here because, for example, Star Wars isn't <laughs> realistic. It, it isn't a simulation that's realistic in everything apart from event and sure. I'm not, I'm not sure Star Wars is the best yeah. example for that we focused on the uh, on literary fiction yeah um there is obviously con there are obviously counterexamples to the, the idea of realism although i mean if you look at star wars the um what makes star wars unrealistic is the idea that you have planets uh you know instead if you if you tell the exact same story but you remove the idea of planets you know you have people who leave a desert uh and who go to a forest and then go to a city. And if, if you change the earth with the desert planet, the city planet and the forest planet, you have space opera. And then you have spaceships you know, instead of having cars. 
But if you look at the plot of uh, a new group, it's basically Casablanca, the, the start of it. And I mean, they, 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 they themselves agree to that, uh, the George Lucas and his crew. So, okay. <laughs> anyway, that not sure that I'm so competent to talk about Star Wars. You know. <laughs> and can, can the cultural evolution help us to craft a better story? Can we advise authors based on that? Mm, uh, I would not dare to do that. Uh, If I, if I knew how to do it, I would uh, definitely change jobs and something more exciting and remunerative. Uh, so, <laughs> that thing that's going to give you my sleep, <laughs> of which I have none, so. You'll see in a few years when, when your novel comes out. <laughs> I, I don't have a novel in preparation. I've never had one. Only non-fiction. Yeah, so stepping, stepping back now and just asking a general question about how... Can this be applied? Because, you know, apparently it can't be applied to yeah. writing a great, a great novel, but are there other applications for cultural evolution? Can it guide policy making, mm -hmm. uh, things like that? Yeah, it's increasingly uh, being used as a way to uh, improve uh, policy making. And so I'm not, my own work is not uh, dealing with that so much. But of course, I read uh, what's being done in the field. Many, many political challenges today are about the spread of certain behaviors, uh, which is terribly slow uh, given the urgency of adopting simple things like uh, eating less meat or uh, taking, not taking the plane so much. And so this is something that cultural evolutionists have a lot to say about uh, because we've learned a lot about the dynamic of the behavior spreading uh, among, among people how it's influenced by uh, social network connectivity and how it's uh, slowed down by cognitive factors, but also by more worrying things like uh, demographics. Not clear that we can change the mind of uh, cohorts of people who have learned their whole way of life uh, a long time ago, uh, to, to, to put it bluntly. So cultural evolutionists have a lot to say about it. Whether it's a silver bullet that can guide policy Uh, sadly, I, I can't say. Um, well, I guess I talked about all the themes that we wanted to touch on, but uh, if there's anything that you would like to clarify or talk about that you think we've missed or something you deem important, now's the time. Oh dear, except that I'm probably going to regret many things I've said <laughs> and nothing should be held against me. <laughs> to be the, the usual caveat for, for a podcast. If anything I said was wrong, uh, please go to the books and papers, which is where the authentic version of everything is. And thanks, you guys, for your amazing questions. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And oh, Thank one you. last thing, too. Do you have any any media recommendations, be it books, mm. be it movies, or anything that, that kind of reflects the themes we've discussed today? There's a kind of fun... I should have prepared that one. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> no, because when we did the, the the Many Minds podcast with Kenzie, we had prepared recommendations that were really nice, and uh, I don't have them. Sorry, can you know for my career? Well, this has been Cognitations, a cognitive science podcast. We've been chatting with Olivier Morin. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. On the next episode of Cognitations, we will chat with Dr. Frédéric de Vignemont about the sense of self, bodily awareness, and prosthetics. If you have ever wondered about how the mind knows the body, this episode is not to be missed.